Um, Josh, why don't you come on up, man? Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He, um, he, we, we met each other through some mutual friends, um, and he had these two friends, I had these two friends, and both of our friends were telling us, you got to meet this guy, you got to meet this guy. And it was just this like, man. And so we, we met each other, and I just, our hearts knitted um, just instantaneously, and I cannot speak highly enough of this guy um, and his family. Um, him and his wife have been just dear friends to me and Jill. Um, we, we vacationed together this year. That's the true test of friendship, right? And we came out going, that's cool. Let's do it again. Um, and we just, we have such love for them, but it goes so much beyond that. Um, he is an unbelievably gifted, um, incredibly gifted leader and pastor. He leads a phenomenal church that's multi-site um, in, in, in Oklahoma City called Frontline. He helps serve um, in Acts 29 um, all the churches in Oklahoma and his, in his, in his influence and leadership spreads way up into the Midwest. He is just incredible, and I'm so thankful that he is here to serve us. I know that we've served him, and it's a real blessing to hear from you. Josh, go for it. Thanks, brother. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. So as we dive into this, uh, my heart really is filled up. It's been so good being with you, and I really have a, a real sense of, of hope and faith in what Jesus is going to do in this movement. Um, I'm full of anticipation to see what he does. I believe he's going to do really big things. And one of the things I find the most refreshing is just the humility of the leaders that are a part of this. Um, It's amazing to be around humble leaders that love Jesus. And the way that they've shown hospitality to me and to Andrew, my brother, has been, uh, it's been humbling to me. And so what I'd like to do is, as we dive into this text today, I want to take just a minute, and if you'd allow me to, I want to pray into what God's doing in this movement. Uh, I, I just want to I want to come alongside and I want to ask Jesus to do exceedingly beyond what you could ask or think in North America. Uh, I want to pray that he would actually add hundreds of leaders and that he would plant hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of churches through this movement and that there would be a sense of robust passion for the gospel and a deep, deep abiding love for the Holy Spirit that would mark this movement. So, Lord, I am so glad you let me come here. I'm just amazed at the grace that you've shown me to call me a son and then to let me find brothers all over the world. Thank you that the longing of my heart for communion, the longing of my heart to not go it alone, but to have a band of brothers, the church, that I get to bleed with and fight with, I'm so thankful that you've answered that prayer. And Lord, I thank you for what you've already done in and through advance, and I thank you that it's just the beginning. I plead with you, Jesus, that you would protect the hearts of these leaders. I pray that you would guard them against the snares of the enemy. I pray that every trap that's laid for them in the way would be exposed. I pray that their hearts would be soft and tender. I pray that humility would mark this movement. I pray that their love for the gospel would only increase. I pray that their commitment to the things of the Spirit would only increase. I pray, Jesus, that you would actually raise up leaders from all over the United States to connect with this movement. I pray that you would plant churches all over North America. I pray that you would shake the rest of the church through this movement, that you would would stir the rest of the church to love and good deeds. And I pray in this time together, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be our teacher. Oh man, how wonderful that we get to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from the Holy Spirit. Lord, I I ask that you would speak. These men and women are going to be really shortchanged if all they get is me. So would you cover me and would you point to the beauty of Jesus, the sufficiency of the gospel, and and just the reality of your love, Father. Your love is totally counterintuitive. It's 
crazy the way you love us. So I pray that your love would be manifested in this room. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do, that you would help us to abide in and rest in the love of the Father, and that you would make us better leaders, better mommies, better daddies for the good of the next generation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus together. Amen. 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 If you've got a Bible, go to Exodus chapter 1. While you guys are going to Exodus chapter 1, let, let me just start this off by saying there's, there's this book called Heart of Darkness that was written by Joseph Conrad, and it's one of my favorite works of all time. It, it's this amazing critique of colonial imperialism. And in that book, you basically have these Westerners that travel into the heart of Africa, and they're expecting to find the darkness of the dark continent, right? They're expecting to experience uh, the grotesque and the dark as they travel up into the Congo. And what happens over the course of that story is that the darkness inside of their own hearts gets exposed. And I love that book, not just because it's fantastic writing, but I love it because it feels like my church planning journey, right? Uh, As a young warrior at 27 years old, I planted a missional church ready to take on the darkness of Oklahoma City, uh, ready to follow Jesus in the battle, ready to push back darkness in gospel proclamation and kingdom demonstration, but I was not ready for the level of darkness that the Lord was going to expose in my own heart, right? I I wasn't ready for him to show me the depths of my pride and my fear, my insecurity, my idolatry, and what's happened again and again along the journey for me in church planning has been this these, um, these really interesting moments where we've hit walls, we've hit times of pain, times of difficulty, and in those moments of pain, what I tend to do is look for external fixes, technological fixes, technique fixes, data fixes to make the pain go away, right? You're, you're hurting in ministry and you just want the pain to stop. And so you go to the next leadership conference or you read the next leadership book and you try to do systemic adjustments to your model so that the pain goes away. And don't get me wrong, those things are beneficial, they're important, they're helpful. But what's fascinating is that nine times out of ten, in the midst of the pain, the first thing that Jesus wants to adjust is my inner life. He wants to do something in my soul in church planting. He wants to take me to a different place of resting in the gospel. And I think what we have in this particular moment in the West is we've taken our fascination with data, technique, technology, and we've let that become the driving paradigm of Christian leadership. Those things do matter. I love systemic thinking. I like reading leadership books. So don't throw that out. But when that becomes the primary focus of spiritual formation in leadership, the words of T.S. Eliot become really true of the church, and they should never be true of the church. Eliot wrote this, We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless. As wind in dry grass, or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. See, I think when we're fascinated with external fixes to our churches and we don't actually allow the penetrating, sanctifying power of God to come into our inner life and actually grow us up to be different, we settle for shallow and hollow gospel ministry. And the last thing the gospel was given to produce is shallow, hollow men in the pulpit. So today what I'd like to do is take a few minutes and talk about the great challenge we have in leadership. 
The challenge is there's two paradigms in leadership that are competing for our hearts. And those two paradigms in leadership, they're in the world, but let's just get super honest and and vulnerable, transparent with each other. Um, They're not just leadership paradigms out there. They're leadership paradigms that rage inside of us, right? And those two leadership paradigms we're going to look at are archetypes of leadership that we'll just call Pharaoh and fathers. Pharaohs and fathers. Pharaoh is an archetype that shows us the way of unredeemed ego and worldly force. Pharaoh is this picture of carnal leadership, of worldly leadership, of vain glory. And spiritual fatherhood is this picture of an expression of the love of Father God through leaders in the local church. So take your Bible, let's look at Pharaoh first. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies, fight against us, and escape from the land. And therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So track with this, in this picture of Pharaoh, we get this glimpse of carnal power, worldly power, hoarding of influence, And what we see is that Pharaoh's marked by two big things, two things. First, Pharaoh is marked by unredeemed ego. Pharaoh is a picture of unredeemed ego. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That phrase, who did not know Joseph, is not a throwaway. Here's what it's saying. Joseph is this linchpin in the meta-narrative of God's capital S story. In the garden, when we sinned, we rebelled, man fell, and God gave this seed promise in Genesis chapter 3, the proto-evangelion. He gave this promise that one day the seed of the woman would come into the world and he would crush the head of the serpent. He would make right all that broke with the fall. The tears that the universe experienced, the separation between man and God would be undone by that seed. That seed promise that was given to Adam was then later elaborated on in the promises to Abraham, in the promises to Isaac and to Jacob. And then those promises come through to Joseph and the lineage of Israel. And so when it says that he did not know Joseph, that's kind of a big deal. Here's what it's saying. Here's this person in power that's not connected to the capital S story of the universe. He doesn't know what it is that God's doing in history. He doesn't know about God's great plan to redeem and to restore and to reconcile. And here's what's happening. Because he doesn't know the capital S story and because he's not suborned to it, he lives as if he gets to write his own script. He lives as if he's the champion and the captain of his existence. He lives as if he was God. And that unredeemed ego, that living as if the story was about him in leadership, results in this double-barreled shotgun of unredeemed ego, right? It's the shotgun that leaders point at people when they don't understand that their story gets redeemed by, captured by, and subordinated to the capital S story of the gospel. Those two barrels are these. The first is pride, and the second is insecurity. Look at Pharaoh's pride, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, And they built for Pharaoh store cities, 
Pithom and Ramses. Here's Pharaoh who doesn't know the story of God's redeeming love, building monuments to his own vainglory. He's building storehouses for his own treasure, for his own name, for his own legacy. It's all about Pharaoh. And what we see in these cities is that Pharaoh is using people to build his empire and kingdom. He's not using his position to build the people that are under him. This is the picture of arrogance. And arrogance always goes hand in hand with that other evil barrel, insecurity. Pride is never alone. Look what it says in verse 9. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Uh, Here's what you see. Not only is Pharaoh all about Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is a man that's driven by fear. He's terrified. Everybody's out to get him. He has to hold on to his power. He has to clutch to his influence. He can't let go of it because the second he stops clinging to it, he's going to lose what he cares most about, his own fame and name. So in that insecurity, in that insecurity, in that fear, he clings to people and he clings to power because his ego has not been redeemed by the power of God's grace and love in Jesus. Now, friends, let's just get super honest. Pharaoh's not just out there. Pharaoh's here with us, right? Pharaoh's in my flesh. Pharaoh's in your flesh. And there's this pull in all of us in our flesh to start to believe the hype that the story of your life is the story of your grandeur and your journey and your destiny instead of being plugged into the capital S story of Jesus and what he's doing. And the second we start to forget that we are about Christ and his name and his fame, those two barrels, pride and insecurity, get pointed at the pews that we're supposed to be loving and serving and we start letting people get put on blast. Pharaoh is a picture of unredeemed ego, but he's also a picture of worldly force. Look at verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. This reminds me much of King Saul. The Bible said that King Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. Uh, Head and shoulders. He's stronger and he's smarter than all the other people in the land. He's a picture of worldly force. And what we see in Saul's journey of rebellion, we see him exerting great force to try to cling to that which he thought was his right. We see him slaughter the priests of Nob. We see him consult a witch. We see him go down deeper and deeper into depravity because he doesn't know the sweet rest and rescue of standing in the security of God's love and grace. So Pharaoh and Saul and leaders that don't rest in the grace of Jesus begin to use manipulation and control and intimidation because power is a drug that we have to cling to. Power starts to become an end in itself. We start using power to get power and using power to keep power. And we forget about the humility of Jesus who clothed himself with flesh to come and serve his enemies. Now, as we talk about this, let's, let's take our attention and let's take our focus off of a Pharaoh witch hunt, right? Like the point in talking about this archetype is not so that we could be Pharaoh hunters in our cities, right? 
uh, let's spot pharaohs in our network or let's spot pharaohs in our town. Like there's no benefit to us being that guy. The reality is, the reason that we're looking at this is that this war, this leadership paradigm of carnal power and forgetting the gospel, it's waging a war against your soul right now as we speak. And so we need a better model. We need something different in leadership. We need what only Jesus can produce, and that's spiritual fatherhood. Spiritual fatherhood. And Paul is an amazing picture of a mature spiritual father. What Paul offers those that he's discipling is not just technique, It's not just data. What Paul offers is content coupled with context. And the context that Paul gives those that he's discipling is this peaceful, prophetic presence. He gives Timothy the gift of peaceful, prophetic presence. In the midst of drama and chaos and pain and life, Paul steps into that drama with this peaceful, prophetic presence that points back to the sustaining grace of God. Take your Bible. We're going to look at this real fast. Go 1 Corinthians 9 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Paul writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So you have Pharaoh with unredeemed ego and worldly force, but then you have Paul who's experienced the life-changing work of the gospel. He's growing into mature masculinity, and instead of unredeemed ego, we get a picture of a powerful leader whose ego has been subordinated to the glory of God in Christ. Instead of being a leader who exerts worldly force to control, coerce, and manipulate, we have a man who walks in deep and consistent spiritual power. So to sum this up, before we get a taste of what it's like to be in a discipleship relationship with someone like Paul, let me put it like this. Pharaohs use people to build their platforms. Spiritual fathers use their platforms to build people. Pharaohs use people to build their platforms. Spiritual fathers use their platform to build people. Pharaoh's only goal is the task at hand. He'll crush anybody that stands in the way of finishing it. Spiritual fathers see the task at hand as a pathway to maturity. It's an opportunity for discipleship. It's an opportunity for relationship. Pharaohs have to keep all those around them small. Pharaoh can have no peers. Pharaoh's the God king. You can't look Pharaoh in the eye. You die if you look Pharaoh in the eye. Spiritual fathers, on the other hand, call out greatness. Spiritual fathers say, get on my shoulders and go further than me. Be better than me. Do more than me. Pharaohs are all about keeping. What did Pharaoh say to Moses again and again in the midst of the plagues? 
I will not let these people go. Spiritual fatherhood is about developing and deploying into destiny. It's about letting people go. Pharaoh has high expectations, high expectations, but he gives you no straw. Do this with excellence, get it done, but there's no equipping, there's no resourcing, there's no help. In fact, he delights in the back-breaking labor of making bricks with no straw. Spiritual fathers have high expectations, but they train and they equip and they empower. Pharaoh puts harsh taskmasters over people. Spiritual fathers provide gentle and wise tutors, coaches, and teachers. Pharaoh smashes in law. Spiritual fathers build up in grace. Pharaoh motivates with fear. Spiritual fathers motivate with love. And so what I want to do is turn to Paul's writings about Timothy and to Timothy and try to find just a sense of what it felt like to be in a relationship with Paul. What did it feel like to be discipled by a mature man that brought peaceful, prophetic presence as he engaged and served Timothy? And and you don't have to turn to all these. You can jot them down if you want and check them later. But I want to read them to you and ask you to try to feel the sense of relationship with this mature model of fatherhood. Philippians chapter 2 verse 19 says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. Um, Does anybody else feel like that in your churches at times? I have no one else to send you. I have no one that's going to be genuinely concerned for the sheep. Everybody's got an agenda. And yet Paul's able to say, here's this one that I can send you who's actually going to care about you. And we have to ask the question, what made Timothy so different? Why does Timothy give a rip about the souls of these people in this church so that Paul can trust him to send him? And I think part of the answer is in this text. Timothy has experienced something in his relationship with Paul that he now has to offer people in relationship. Why was Timothy genuinely concerned? Well, at least part of the answer is that he knows what it's like to have someone genuinely care about his soul. He knows what it's like to be checked on. He knows what it's like for his welfare and his calling to be guarded. He experienced leadership from someone who actually looked out for him. Timothy's able to step in and engage and serve leaders and sheep because he knows what it's like to be engaged and served by a mature spiritual father. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, his charge to Timothy is anchored in his own mature masculine modeling and teaching. He's saying, what I taught you, teach. How I loved you, love. What I gave you, give. Content matters. Doctrine matters. But isn't it interesting that in this moment in the church, there's more content than ever before in the history of the world? Like, you don't even have to go to seminary at this point. You can go online and get it for free. Not saying do that, I'm just saying it's available. Content is coming out of our ears. And what we're missing is context. 
It's relationship. It's transformational, interpersonal relationships with people that can model the things that we're supposed to be doing in ministry that we have no idea how to do. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 says this, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I find this breathtaking. Here is Paul not only delighting in the grace of God, but he delights in Timothy. He enjoys Timothy. He loves Timothy, and he actually likes Timothy. In the adolescence of leadership, the baseline of our relationships is frustration with moments of delight. In the adolescence of ministry, we spend most of our time being frustrated with those that just don't get it like we want them to get it. In mature spiritual fatherhood, the baseline is delight with moments of frustration. What Paul models here is that he actually loves Timothy. He sees the fingerprints of God on him. And he delights in being in relationship with him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 says this, But as for you, talking to Timothy, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Pay special attention to how he addresses Timothy here. He writes to Timothy and says, O man of God. He actually sees Timothy through gospel lenses. He sees Timothy through the finished work of Jesus, and he looks at him, and instead of leading with Timothy's performance, he leads with the beautiful reality of the finished work of Jesus as it relates to Timothy. So here's what he could have said, uh, and I'm really good at this conversation with leaders. He could have said, Timothy, your performance is lagging. Try harder, do more. He could have led with that. He could have led with a focus on what's broken in Timothy. We, we all like to focus on pathology in this particular moment. And he could have started with what's broken. He could have said, oh, young and timid Timothy. Timothy, you spent too much time with your mom and your sisters. <laughs> Timothy, fearful, weak, anemic, stomach frail. But he doesn't do that. He puts pen to paper. He says, oh, man of God, he makes a gospel declaration that Timothy desperately needed to hear. He could have focused on technique, right? Like he could have said, Timothy, here are seven things that you're doing wrong and 14 things that you need to do better, and they all start with P, right? But here's what he does. He reminds Timothy of the main thing that every person in gospel ministry needs to be reminded of, and that is who we are and what we do is anchored in what Jesus has done. Timothy is experiencing gospel affirmation from an older man of God who's literally calling out gospel greatness by faith. He sees him not through the flesh, but through the spirit. He sees him not through a performance lens, but through a gospel lens. And then in the midst of that, he moves on to, now Timothy, because of who you are through the finished work of Jesus, act the man. Gird your loins for battle. Flee sin. 
Wake up, be sober, be alert. But in Paul's relationship with Timothy, he focuses on the finished work of Jesus, and from that finished work, he gives commands and imperatives. Now, let, let me say a couple things here. I am not suggesting that we get weird and start introducing people as our sons in the Lord. Okay? In fact, I would recommend don't do that. That's weird. <laughs> but what I am saying is this. It's really difficult for families to rise above the emotional and spiritual health of their father. Correct? It's really difficult for young men who have never had a dad to figure out how to be a dad, is it not? And it's really, really difficult to raise up godly elders in our churches and godly disciples in our churches if there's not an expression of mature gospel masculinity in the church. What's lacking in many of our churches is not content. There's a lot of content. It's context. It's relationship with mature spiritual fathers that aren't out to take they're out to model, they're out to get, and they're out to lay down their life. So here's the question. How do we grow into that? I think we all want that or we wouldn't be here, correct, fellas? So how do we set our sights on growing into mature spiritual fatherhood? I, I want to end with Matthew 3. Take your Bible, go Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It's this beautiful picture of our Trinitarian God that we delight in. Here's what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. C.S. Lewis talked about the Trinity as the dance of God. The idea being that for all eternity, our one God has existed in three persons who delight in one another. The Father delights in the Son and showers His love on Him. And the Son looks at the Father and delights in Him and showers His love on Him. And the Spirit delights in the Father and the Spirit delights in the Son. And the Spirit somehow is even mediating and manifesting this delight in this text. This dance of God, this Trinitarian unity, this Trinitarian love, this honoring of one another has actually been open to us through the finished work of the Spirit. Not to say that we become God or that we enter into the Trinity, but what Jesus prays in John 17 is that the unity and the love, the communion that he knows with the Father, that we would actually experience it in the work of the Spirit. So here's what I see in this text. I see the Father opening his mouth, and the Father is affirming and delighting in the Son, not based on Jesus' preaching, teaching, miracles, or even the cross, just delighting in who he is. Jesus hasn't preached a sermon yet in this text. Jesus hasn't laid his hands on a sick person yet in this text. He hasn't broken the fish and the bread yet and fed the multitudes. Jesus gets baptized, and the Father opens his mouth, and he says, you're mine. You're my boy, and I delight in you. I enjoy you. My heart is towards you and for you. 
And then the Spirit of God does something really beautiful. The Spirit of God rests on the Son. And we almost have this picture in the text. I, I think we can make the argument from Romans that what's happening in this text is the Spirit is actually manifesting that love in an, in, in, an, in an experiential way to Jesus in his humanity. He's resting on him. He's lighting on him. So how on earth, how on earth do we grow to be spiritual fathers and not Pharaohs? Well, it's really hard, but it's so stinking simple. It's abiding in the love of the Father through the finished work of the Son and the experiential power of God the Holy Spirit. How do we grow in the mature masculine and have strength and love and grace to offer? We start to drink more deeply of the well that we've been invited into. We actually get to fellowship with this dancing God. And what Paul says about the Spirit in Romans is that he's the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What's available to us as ministers of the gospel is the same thing that was available to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, affirmation of the Father to his Son. Let that sink in. Before you preach, before you plant, before you do a single hospital visit, because of your union with Christ, the Father opens his mouth and he looks at you in this very moment and he doesn't grade you based on your performance, but he has a declaration to make. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God has the power and ability and authority to land on you and to rest on you so that you might experience what PJ mentioned this morning, the assurance of that love, the reality of that love. This is where grace stops being just a theological construct and it starts to become a relational reality as we begin to abide in the love of the Father through the finished work of the Son on the cross in your place for your sins in the, in the abiding power of the Holy Spirit day by day. Now, this is why I don't think there's anything more important for any minister of the gospel in this room than to actually mine, explore Rest in and enjoy the love of God for the rest of our lives. Let's get better at doing what we do, amen? But don't think that any measure of technique, data, or technology can replace the central dependence of a Christian minister on actually experiencing this gospel affirmation that's available for you that actually changes you so that you can look more like the Father that loves you so much through the work of the Son. How do we love people? You get changed by love. What makes you gentle? You get changed by the gentleness of God. What begins to make you more patient? You experience the patience of God. He's the Father. He's the Father, and from Him, all little spiritual fathers are supposed to rest and taste of goodness that they then can go and share, not with them being the source, because we're not, but pointing to the source that has no end, the well that never runs dry. So here's what's more important than all the things on your to-do list next week. And I know you have a lot, right? I just realized in the last couple hours, I'm like, oh, I forgot, I'm preaching this Sunday. Mike should have prepped for that. But here's what's more important even than sermon prep, even than counseling, 
even in your leaders' meetings, even in developing new elders, here's what's the most important, that you stay anchored and rooted in the love of God in Christ Jesus because that's what's going to help you grow, finish the race, and become a spiritual father, and that's what your church needs. So as we close, here's what I'd like us to do. Can we stand? And can you take a minute and just close your eyes? And I want you to do something with me that's a little bit difficult. I want you to have the vulnerability to do a bit of shadow work. That's not new age and weird. It's what David does in a lot of the Psalms. David's willing to look at the parts of him in his sin, in his brokenness, in his weakness, in his fear, in his insecurity. He's able to look at that And instead of hiding it from God, he actually brings it into the presence of God because it's in the presence of God that God's love starts to change those things. So can we just take a second and just look? I don't recommend we do this all the time, but every now and then, let's look inside. There's insecurity in me, friends. There's pride in me. Pharaoh lurks in my flesh and sometimes he creeps in in elders meetings and I hate him. I hate what he does to people. I hate how he handles people. I hate how in fear he clings to position and title. So where do you spot him inside of you? Where do you spot him trying to convince you that you have to find your way and you have to build your platform and you have to climb over people to get to where you want to be. And when you spot him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring him into the presence of God because God's here. And I, I want you to allow the love of God to meet you, this is grace, to meet you in that very place of brokenness. Because the Father's declaration of you, even in the midst of that area of brokenness, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Father's not waiting to love a future version of you that's more sanctified. He loves you right now. Delights in you. He likes you. So Father God, we bring these things that are really ugly to you. Fear, In fact, maybe if if you're so bold, maybe you could just have the courage to just whisper to the Father what you found when you looked inside. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of losing. Petrified of failure. I'm more afraid of not having enough money than I am obeying you. I'm afraid that if I really grow into spiritual maturity and love like this, that people will take advantage of me? Or maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's, maybe it's your flesh whispering, you're no Donnie, you're no PJ. Who are you? What do you have to contribute? Why are you here? Maybe there was conversations during this conference where someone mentioned what's happening in their church and Instead of feeling joy, you felt, you felt jealousy and insecurity. I've felt that a thousand times. 
whisper it to the Lord. He already knows it's there. He searches your innermost being. He knows you. He knows you Adam from Adam. But have the courage to bring that thing into his presence. And when you've got it in front of your eyes and you bring it to the Father, when you do that, just hold out your hands to him. It's just a sign of, here it is. You already knew this was here. It may be news to me, but it's not news to you, Father. And now, Father God, would you, in this moment, grant that we may taste of your love and affirmation in Christ. That we can lay these things down and we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. Spirit of God, come, help me cry, Abba, Father, tonight. Help me call the God of the universe that spoke words and the galaxies were born. Help me come today and call him Daddy. Help me rest in his love. Help me lay down my toiling and my striving. Help me lay down law. Rest in grace. Now in this moment, as you just rest in the love of God, just let the Father affirm His love for you. He may whisper to you. He may bring to mind a particular passage. This is a form of prayer. It's not active prayer. It's not intercession, but it's prayer. Thank you that you love us. Deep repentance always is turning from, but it's also turning towards. It's turning from these things that hold us in the Pharaoh trap, but it's turning towards the love of God. It's not enough to just turn from. You have to turn towards. But repentance is incomplete. Lord, I want to be full of your love so I can love people. Jesus, you're better. You're better than big churches. You're better than perfect budgets. You're better than physical health. God, I want to know that more deeply. Help us to know that more deeply. And I pray for these men that you would grow them to be mature spiritual fathers. And I pray for these ladies that they would be amazing women of God walking out the realities of Titus 2. Pray that there would be depth and groundedness in us, that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that Christ may be formed in us and through us to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.